Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you this morning. Merry Christmas to you. Uh, we, we are in this season of Christmas, the season of basking in the glory of the Lord, in the grace of the incarnation. Today, I want to read another gospel text to us this morning, and I want to invite us to bow our heads together. I want to read this and have us reflect on what is one of the most theologically robust passages in all of Scripture from the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we've received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. So we're sitting in this Christmas season, this season where we recognize this light that has shined in the darkness. For those of you that are new to the church calendar, you may kind of go, Christmas, I thought that already happened, right? Um, Well, in the historic church, there are actually 12 days of Christmas. Remember that uh, fun and sometimes annoying song that we used to sing, the 12 days of Christmas, right? And uh, it's a beautiful song, but, but these 12 days of Christmas actually begin with Christmas Day, and they end with Epiphany, which is January 6th this Saturday. In fact, there are some traditions that believe, and that's the day where we recognize the story of the Magi who came from a distance, who were Gentiles, who came from far away to witness the Christ child. In fact, in some traditions, they give gifts at Epiphany, and the gifts are given by the Magi, not by Santa Claus, right? So it's interesting, which is a little bit more of a fit with the church calendar. But Epiphany is this day where we recognize this beautiful thing that's happened at Christmas. This light that has shined in the darkness is not just for a few people in Bethlehem. It's not just for one family or one ethnicity, but it's for the whole world. It's for everybody. So this Saturday with your family, it would be an appropriate day for you to gather the family together and read the story of the Magi. And reflect on this thing that is good news for everybody. And because of this light that shined in the darkness that always goes out, it's because of that that we have Greek Christians, Egyptian Christians, British Christians, French Christians, African Christians, Chinese Christians, Indian Christians, American Christians. We could go on because this light goes out. 
At Epiphany, we celebrate that this light of Jesus does not succumb to the darkness, but it keeps moving. And today I want to speak about that light. That light in which John says here shines in the darkness, even when the darkness and as the darkness does not receive it. And even as the darkness does not receive it, it doesn't succumb to the darkness. It shines. If you read the four Gospels, these four stories of the life of Jesus, the Gospel of John stands out in a unique way. The other three tell us a story. They, they tell the story from different angles, but they're a bit more linear. Um, they have different agendas, but their goal is to tell us kind of the story of Jesus. John is more of a theologian than a historian. His gospel was written the latest, about 90 AD, which means there was perhaps more time for him to reflect and for the church to reflect on the reality of what has happened in Jesus. Decades have passed. The early church has been meeting for a while. John is an old man, and he was also the one who was closest to Jesus. He was intimately aware of his mission and of who he was and who he is. So we see here at the beginning of John's gospel, one of the most theologically robust passages in all of scripture. There's this dramatic prologue right here at the beginning. And this prologue is kind of the story before the story. So he tells the story and then he unpacks the story in the rest of his gospel. And he starts with this word that was probably kind of controversial. The word is word. The word, word. And the Greek word for word is logos. In the beginning was the word. Now, there are lots of other words that John could have used, probably. We would think about the themes of John's gospel. He could have said, in the beginning was the glory. Glory is a theme for John's gospel. In the beginning was love, right? Love is a theme of John's gospel. Those are huge themes. Why would he use the word word? And it's also controversial because this word word carries a lot of baggage with it. In the first century at this time, there was all kinds of attachments to this word logos or this word word. Like, think about some words today that we use that have baggage attached to them. Like, wherever you use them, they go beyond their, their definition. So if you say words today in our heated political climate, if you say words like regulation or security, privatization, right? If you say the word healthcare to almost anyone, the two words healthcare to almost anyone in our culture, everyone will simultaneously roll their eyes, right? John uses this word that has baggage, all kinds of baggage attached to it. And word, he uses this word logos, this word word, and he somehow creates something new out of it. And we've seen this happen before in literature. So I mentioned this word epiphany earlier. And uh, it comes from the Greek word meaning to appear or to reveal. And it was always used in, uh, in the world in a divine or religious context, like the epiphany that we're about to celebrate. But then there was a new um, term that kind of came to uh, define this, uh, this word epiphany, which was a sudden spiritual manifestation, whether from some object, seen, event, or memorable phrase of the mind, the manifestation being out of proportion to the significance or strictly logical relevance of whatever produces it. So now, when you hear the word epiphany in our culture, we go, I had an idea. I had a uh, kind of change of mind or revelation, and we attribute that actually to the author James Joyce, that he first used epiphany in this way and kind of coined it, did something different with it. There are other examples of people inventing words, taking other ideas or sounds and inventing words. So have you ever called someone a nerd before? 
hopefully not me for using this illustration, but, but the word nerd comes from 1950, Dr. Seuss, right? Or words like bump, swagger, obscene, luggage are all from Shakespeare, right? John does something brilliant here. He takes this word with all this cultural baggage from all different groups, and he pulls them together and gives the word new meaning. So the word logos was actually used quite a bit in Greek philosophy. It was a common word meaning account or message or story beginning about 500 BC, so a long time before this. So in Platonic thought, in Platonism, Neoplatonism, the logos was the reason that ruled the universe. It was the central logic or the essence of the universe, and it was always abstract, never physical, never tangible. But for John, this logos, this logic of the universe is not abstract, it's real. It's flesh and bone. This word is not something theoretical like the Greek philosophers would have said. It's not a form that exists somewhere in the universe. The word is an event, a historical event of the person of Jesus Christ. So John takes this Greek logos, this logic of the universe, and he gives it, he breathes into it new meaning. But if you're a Jewish person, the, this phrase and this passage and this prologue would mean something different to you because of the words in the beginning. In the beginning points you where? To Genesis. In the beginning, that's when God created, when God spoke life. So if you were a faithful Jewish person in the first century and you heard in the beginning, you go, the Bible begins with creation, with God speaking things into into existence. So John is pointing us back to creation. John is reminding us this is what God's word, the logos, actually does. He creates. God speaks and things happen. Things are brought into existence. This is the beginning of new creation here we see in John's gospel. And if you follow the story in Genesis, God doesn't stop speaking in the Genesis story. Throughout Israel's history, God's word does stuff. Whenever God speaks, stuff happens. I wonder if you know somebody in your life who their word and their actions don't line up. They say things, and those things never seem to materialize, right? They commit to things, and then something better always comes along. We tend to do this as people. We say that we give our word, but there's often a disconnect between our speaking and our action. We say that our word is our bond, but our actions are not guaranteed to follow our words all the time. Well, John is saying here that God's words and his actions are not like our words and actions in that way. God's word and action goes together. The story that John is about to tell is about God speaking, but not only God speaking, God speaking that is also creating, that is acting, that is working in the world, that always goes together. This is a story about God's word made flesh. And in the story that he's about to tell is about new creation. He's taking the old creation and he's breathing into it afresh. Kind of like a water tap has been connected to a contaminated water supply. And the contamination has gotten into the pipes. It's clung onto the walls. So you know it's not just the water that's flowing that's contaminated, but it's now the pipes and everything have become 
contaminated. And the pipes, and then all of a sudden, pure water breaks through. Well, the pipes are still contaminated, right? They're still yucky. They're still gross. But it's only a matter of time before all that there is is the pure and clean water. This new creation is breaking through in the word made flesh. We don't see that fully yet. There's still brokenness in our world, but we know that the water supply is pure. God speaking, God's word has taken on human flesh and he's working in the world. Now, for a lot of us, when we hear the, the term God's word, what, do, what does that usually mean to us? Um, for a lot of us, we think when we hear God's word, we think the Bible. And that's not altogether inappropriate to think it that way. Where do the scriptures fit into this when we talk about God's word? But notice, John is speaking about the word made flesh, not the word made text. Okay? Scripture is the word of God. Yes, and we need to say that definitively. Scripture is the word of God, but it is the word of God in a secondary sense. It is the word about the word, Jesus, the word made flesh. In fact, some even say, and we talk about it this way appropriately, when we preach, we're proclaiming the word of God. And that, that proclamation is the word of God. That's appropriate to say, but it's the word about the word about the word, right? So Jesus is the word of God. Scripture is the word about the word. Proclamation is the word about the word about the word. It's all the word of God, but it points back to Jesus. The word made flesh is the word of God. God's word is God and has always been God. This word is Jesus whom John's gospel is all about. And once again, in the person of Jesus, God creates. God calls forth life, life and light out of the world that has fallen into darkness and chaos. God speaking, God's word, this creating personal God takes on residence. He dwells among us. In fact, I love how the message translation translates verse 14. It says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, son, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. You have a God who moved into your neighborhood. Many of the pagan gods at that time, and we could say in our time, see your neighborhood as icky. There's too much crime, there's too much pain in your neighborhood, too much brokenness. For these gods, the goal was and is to get people out of the neighborhood, right? Let's just get people out of the neighborhood. Let's just eject them and put them somewhere else or take them somewhere else. Not our God. Our God says, I'm moving in side by side next to you. With pain and suffering, with brokenness, in the midst, I'm here. And that's what the whole life of Jesus looks like. If you read the whole story in the life of Jesus, he says it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but, a, but the sick, right? He brings those who are estranged back into community. In Jesus, new creation is bursting in the midst of old creation. In Jesus, this creator God is present among us and with us. So for us today, where is the point of your shame? The point where you feel darkness in your life where you feel worthlessness, where you, those places where you felt rejected and abandoned, those places where you feel that you don't measure up, where you're lost in sin. God is not far away waiting for you to straighten up. He's come close to you. He's drawn near to you. He's already here. 
And then there's this word light. What do we know about light? Well, light is a wave. Light, light is a disturbance that moves outward. And as a wave, light expands. It radiates in all directions. It interferes with all the other waves. <laughs> it bends around corners. Yes, light actually does that. It moves so fast we can't see it. But light bends around corners. It carries energy. It carries momentum. It interacts with matter. That's what light does. And yet light is also electromagnetic, which means it apparently... I, not a scientist or anything. It doesn't need another medium to carry the wave, right? You don't need an electric current to make magnetic fields. Electromagnetic waves don't need another medium because they're their own medium. And then when we see light, we see it in two different ways. Light enters our eyes, so through a light source. So when the lights came on in your house today, you recognize that as light. It sends a signal to your brain that says that is light. But there's another way that we see light. It's through reflection. So what light does is not only does it show us that that's light, that light bulb is light, but it shows us everything around us. It shows us the world around us. That everything can be seen more clearly. Christ is the source of our light, and we perceive that through the eye of our heart. But it doesn't stop there. The point of the Christian story is not just that we've seen the light, the point is that we can see everything around us in the light of Christ. Everything that's broken, everything that needs to be revealed, our pain and our suffering and our systems of injustice in our world and our struggles, we can see that in light of Christ. The systems of our world look different in the light. Our neighbors look different in the light. Leonardo da Vinci said, a painter should begin every canvas with a wash of black. Because all things in nature are dark, except where exposed by the light. In fact, in the Quaker tradition, the Quaker Christian tradition, there's this saying, when you pray for someone, when someone asks for prayer, they say, I will hold you into the light. Hold you into the light. A Quaker prayer is this idea of praying and imagining that that person, that everything in their life would be warmed, would be healed, would be revealed in the light of Christ. But John tells us that there's also a dark side to this story. The world has not prepared itself for the arrival of the eternal word. In fact, the, the world that he came to rejected him. The neighborhood association doesn't approve, right? And throughout the, the life of Jesus, we see this dissonance with the word made flesh and everybody around him. So some people say, Jesus, that's a hard word. Don't say that anymore. His, his mom and his brothers and sisters think that he's gone mad. They think that he's crazy. There's this dissonance between this light who's come into the world and then the darkness that rejects the world. The word creates, but the word also tears down idols. It removes thorns and thistles. The word is present to judge the world. So this light is gladdening. There's this old song, this old um, antiphon that is, oh, gladdening light, hail gladdening light. This light in Christ is gladdening. But I want to suggest today it's also maddening. <laughs> that this light that comes into our world challenges us. It shakes us. It messes with our idols. Why does God have to judge the world? <laughs> is it because he sees sin as something icky and doesn't want anything to do with it so he smites us? No. 
Judgment and good news always go together. You can't have one without the other. In fact, only something that's judged can actually be healed. So if you go to the doctor and and you have a broken arm, it's not going to do you any good to hide your broken arm behind your back from the doctor. You have to say, I'm broken. (laughs) Will you heal me? Great physician, will you heal me? Will you put this back together? Many of us, I want to suggest, live our lives as if the the word was never made flesh. We believe in the word of God. We believe in Jesus. We believe in Christianity. But we act as if that belief, that intellectual belief, is where it ends. Our logos sometimes is a lot like the Greeks. God is real, but he's far away. He's flighty. He's distant. In fact, many of the narratives that dominate our culture act this way. So sometimes we, I think we're guilty of this as Christians, we act as if the Lagos is only something personal for me, individual for me. Yes, God is close, but the light only shines in my heart. That doesn't affect my neighbors. It doesn't affect the social structures of our world, of poverty, of racism, of systems of oppression. That's not really part of the gospel. This is a personal gospel. It's for me. And then we have other elements of our culture that say, yes, your faith should compel you to service and to action. But that actually becomes a way of deflecting the fact that that light goes to the idols of our hearts. The very things at the core of who we are, of what we put in the center, of we put at the focus. And both of those are really saying the same thing. They express themselves differently, but they're both saying there are parts of the human life and human soul that are not touched by the word made flesh. He wasn't really made flesh. There are parts of life that should be held in private. When the word is made flesh and moves into the neighborhood, things get messy. And they always do when God moves in. So we close today. There's three things that I hope we can take away from this um, today. First of all, I hope that every person in here knows that you are invited to know God. That he is close to you. He's not distant or abstract. Yes, he is beyond our comprehension and our understanding. And that's one of the mysteries of the Christian story. But he also has said that he wants to be known personally by us. He took the ultimate action of stepping into our neighborhood. Secondly, God is drawing near and it's good news. And it's also judgment. (laughs) When you get to know him, there are places in your heart that will start to itch. (laughs) Um, I don't know if you've had this phenomenon, but if you uh, haven't, like, exercised in a long time, you haven't run in a long time, and then you start running and your legs just start to itch really bad, right? It's because there's places in your body that have not received oxygen in a long, long time, right? (laughs) And the oxygen is getting there, and it's headed there, and that's good, but it's miserable, right? In fact, I want to suggest it's even more than itching. When we come closer to God, I know this isn't a real seeker-sensitive thing to say, but, but the closer that we come to God, the more pain we're going to feel in a lot of ways because there's idols that are challenged in our heart. There's places that haven't received oxygen in a long time. There's places that need to be set by a surgeon. Following Jesus is painful, and it means demolishing other structures that prop up in our lives. We need to make some changes, and that means it's healing. If you're here today and you're convicted of sin, that's good news. <laughs> that's healing, right? Healing is coming, right? Now, don't slip into shame. 
Shame is saying, God can never use me. I'm so broken. I'm so, that, that's not of God. That's not the story. But where those things begin to itch and they go, God, I need to demolish this idol in my life. That's good news because healing is on the way. And finally, as we do this, it changes our posture towards others. We begin to look at the brokenness of the world and ask, what would happen if Jesus was here right now? What would happen at my job if Jesus walked in these halls? What would happen in my city, in my neighborhood, if Jesus was in charge? And then you remember, he is here. He is in the neighborhood, and he lives in you. As we close, I want to invite you to bow your heads with me. Close your eyes. Um, there's a prayer that I want us to pray together, and this is a prayer from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and it is actually a prayer that he wrote from a Nazi prison, one of the places that I'm sure felt the darkest. Um, all of the pain and all the things that he's going through and wrestling with and trying to be faithful, and yet recognizing even the darkness in his own heart. Um, so what I want to do is I'm going to read this over us as you close your eyes the first time. I just want you to reflect on it. And then I want you to open your eyes and look at the screen and read it as I read it over us the second time. And then we're going to all read it together as we close. In me, there is darkness, but with you, there is light. I am lonely, but you do not leave me. I am feeble in heart, but with you, there is help. I am restless, but with you, there is peace. In me, there is bitterness, but with you, there is patience. I do not understand your ways, but you know the way for me. Why don't you open your eyes? I'll read this, and if you'll follow along on the screen. In me, there is darkness, but with you, there is light. I am lonely, but you do not leave me. I am feeble in heart, but with you, there is help. I am restless, but with you, there is peace. In me, there is bitterness, but with you, there is patience. I do not understand your ways, but you know the way for me. Let's say this all together one more time. In me, there is darkness, but with you, there is light. I am lonely, but you do not leave me. I am feeble in heart, but with you there is help. I am restless, but with you there is peace. In me there is bitterness, but with you there is patience. I do not understand your ways, but you know the way for me. Gracious God, we thank you for stepping into our world, for being light in darkness. Thank you that you didn't stay far away from us, looking at us, thinking that we're icky and gross, but that you stepped into the ickiness, that you stood side by side in our neighborhood. Although the darkness rejected you, Lord, thank you that your light shines and goes out today. Lord, as we pray that prayer today, I pray it not just for each of us individually, though I hope that we pray this individually together, but also we pray this on behalf of our world our world that is dark, our world that is lonely, our world that is feeble in heart, our world that is restless, our world that is bitter. We don't understand your ways, Lord, but we know that you have light. You are light. 
We trust in you today. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.